0: This is Daniel Fajella, head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This episode is less about near-term business implications and more about the big picture of where AI is taking us and what it means for humanity and human civilization. Our guest this week is Dr. Robin Hanson, associate professor of economics at George Mason University and one of the longstanding thinkers in the sort of singularity space with disagreements with Yadowski and other major players in that space going back a very, very long time. We've had past series on the AI and Business Show called the AI Futures Series. We've had famed researchers like Stuart Russell and Stephen Wolfram. We've had leaders from the United Nations and OECD speaking about the policy implications of AI as it becomes strong AI or artificial general intelligence. In this episode with Robin, we talk about when AI becomes strong. In other words, when we have artificial general intelligence, what are likely to be its implications on the international order, particularly that of the United States and China, as well as on the economy. Robin and I started this conversation based on sort of staying in touch over the years. My first interview with Robin was 10 long years ago. We follow each other on various social media platforms. I have an article called The Last Words of Alexander which is about artificial general intelligence and sort of its implications in the longer term. Robin had some things he thought he disagreed with about that article, and we hash out some of the points where indeed our ideas differ quite substantially. But by the end of this interview, we get down to something that we both agree on, which is that even if artificial general intelligence has to be warm, fuzzy, and friendly here on Earth to keep everybody safe and happy, it damn well better be as strong as possible when it populates the galaxy and has to put up with foes Off the Planet Earth, which is very much in line with that essay, The Last Words of Alexander. You can Google my name and then just The Last Words of Alexander. You will find that essay to see what sort of spurned this conversation. I appreciate Robin reaching out to me when he read it. Uh, And hashing out some interesting topics on the show. It's been a really long time following his thinking. And even for some of you who have heard Robin's ideas around artificial general intelligence, I doubt you've seen this much of it unraveled in terms of exactly why he thinks that AGI is not quite as dangerous as some other thinkers think it is and why he thinks it may be an extension of our great kind of technological and economic machine that we're already running here on Earth. He makes some analogies that I think are relatively compelling, even if you don't agree with all of them. A final point I will mention as we head into this episode is that I have a new podcast coming out called The Trajectory. For those of you who have been here over the years for many, many years, I mean six, seven years running, I've occasionally had these series where we talk about the big picture of artificial general intelligence, when AI goes beyond just making a dent to the bottom line, and it starts making a dent to the human condition and maybe to the universe. In this new show called The Trajectory, we're basically going to be hashing out the real politic of artificial general intelligence? What are the power dynamics between the major players, the United States, China, OpenAI, DeepMind, et cetera? What are the political moves that they're likely to make? What are the political moves they're making now? And what does that mean for sort of who wields power into the future? This is the sole focus of this new show called The Trajectory. This podcast is not yet launched, but it will be launched to my new newsletter for The Trajectory, which you can learn more about at emerj.com slash TJ1. That's TJ like trajectory. E M E R J.com slash TJ1. And you can sign up for that newsletter. When that new podcast goes live, you will learn about it. One of our first guests in this trajectory podcast is none other than Yashua. Bengio, Yashua Bengio being the great and famed AI researcher alive today who is now very much an active voice in AI risk. He is one of many amazingly big names that we're going to be bringing on the to the trajectory as soon as that show launches. So stay tuned there and stay tuned for a fun conversation with Robin. Without further ado, let's fly right in. This is Robin Hanson on the AI and Business podcast. <laughs>
1: Robin Hanson, welcome back to the show. Hello, Dan. Nice to see you again. Yes, it's great to be able to connect and unpack a topic that I've certainly seen a lot of your tweets about and read your ideas about for many years. In this case, artificial general intelligence and power. I want to start our conversation with some of the things that you really believe people are getting wrong about AGI and power, including kind of controllability and this idea of there being one controlling AI. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as those core mistakes and then also why they're so darn wrong for you? Well,
2: you know, eventually they'll be AGI. I mean, they may not be a single one, maybe thousands of variations. They will, of course, be more advanced than what we have now. Therefore, compared to stuff we have now, they will be more powerful, more capable, just like all technology has been getting more capable over time you know, just like any other technology, we'll want to worry about controlling it or worry about weird things it could do in weird states and watching out for those and preventing them. So, you know, but that's been true of all technology we've ever had. We have to track it and see whether it's broken or whether it's getting, deviating out of the way we want it. And that will also be true for AGI eventually. There'll be individual AGI systems and people who create them or monitor them or oversee them or regulate them, will be interested in watching out for there is dangers they could cause to their owners or their neighbors, or things like that. And so it's almost surely that will happen eventually and almost surely there will be people who think about that, that who are in the job right, task of doing that. But, you know, there is this widespread belief that, you know, that those sort of things would be catastrophic. That is, not only will they deviate from desired parameters, but they might do so in a big sudden way that then they deviate like extremely and then cause enormous damage. And even so far that like one of them will then take over the universe in a sudden moment of deviation from its usual operating parameters. And that's so important that we should be preparing for it and that we can do something now about that we should be like working out the design of these future systems and their control systems in order to prevent these extreme dysfunctional breaking in this distant future environments now that's the thing i'm more skeptical about that sure there will be future technology and sure it'll go wrong sometimes and sure people will be needing to pay some attention to controlling and monitoring it but in the past, we've always waited until we had concrete examples of systems in front of us behaving in actual environments and we looked for how they actually went wrong and then we designed control and monitoring systems in order to deal with the actual problem we see in front of us and that's the reason that makes sense is it's hard to actually anticipate the problems and how to deal with them until you actually see concrete examples, but it's usually worked just fine. <laughs> that is. Systems don't, like, destroy the world in a moment suddenly after they look to be completely fine. (laughs) If you're going to destroy the whole world, we'll usually, like, have increasingly large damages of, you know, whatever you do wrong. And so actual systems, you should be able to see the range of deviations and their causes and guess roughly what the chance of a much larger breakage is and appropriately
1: allocate resources for that. I can certainly see where you're headed here. It's like, why should this be treated as some far-off philosophical slash future technical engineering issue of ethics plus the technical parameters plus whatever else, when that's really not how we've managed anything else in the real world ever. I can also see that there are certainly folks that are of the belief that a quote-unquote fast takeoff may happen after some threshold by which it would be very hard to understand what's going on. And Bostrom has the idea of sort of the black ball being drawn from the urn, right? That at some point there will be you know, one development in AI. Of course, it hasn't happened, Robin. You and I are still talking right now. So the ball has not been drawn from the urn. But, but at some point, the ball would be drawn. And that just by happenstance, we haven't drawn it yet. But when it is drawn, the consequences would be grand. I suspect to the latter circumstance, you might say, well, what can you do to predict that anyway? But the former, I think, has to do with the fact that you are more on the side of the slower takeoff inherently. Is that a misappropriate way of categorizing your thought
2: here? So I definitely think the growth rates of the world economy could be much faster. But if the world economy grew much faster, that would be because lots of things could grow fast, not just one part of it. One part of the world growing fast is just not enough to make the whole economy grow fast. So if a fast-growing economy counts as a fast takeoff, then I guess I'm on the fast takeoff side. (laughs) But the scenario is that there's one small part of the world initially of Insignificance, tiny power or capability that in a suddenly short time becomes much more powerful than everything else in the world, universe and takes over everything. That's the scenario I find much less plausible, to, especially to be working about this far in advance.
1: So you would suspect that we would need all different industries to develop, different technologies to develop. AI would be put into good use in all kinds of disparate applications. And there would be that slow bubbling up of everything, including technology, as it has been in the past and so in the future. This is more of your ideas, that things will grow in so much as our constraints and our economy and our needs grow. So
2: certainly the highest meta-level thing is let's look at the trajectory of how changes happened in the past. Roughly guess change will be roughly like that in the future and prepare accordingly. And now you could entertain Arguments that things will be very different in the future than in the past. But now you need the burden of proof, is you on more to like explain what you think different will happen and why. And if, if you can't make a very good case, I think the rest of us are justified in like
1: shrugging our shoulders and saying, yeah, maybe not. And so some people will be familiar with your AI foom debates. For those of you who are not, that word is going to be a pretty tough one for you to Google. You can Google AI space F O O M to hear some of Robin's well known thoughts in this sort of fast versus slow takeoff side of things. I think this ties in some way, shape, or form to another misconception that you push back against, which is this idea of, you know, as you framed it, the one AI that takes over the universe, right? The thing that is born at some point, it runs away, it, you know, builds rocket ships and conquers the galaxy all by itself as a singular AI. The idea of singleton is brought about, maybe there's a distinction there that you want to unpack in terms of how you disagree with that idea versus some other idea of superintelligence, but talk to us a little bit about why you really push back against that notion.
2: So let's make sure we understand why it's important. So I think of the example of a coup. So most nations have military systems, and one of the dramatic way in which a military system can fail is through a coup. A nation can literally lose control of its military, and that can be pretty problematic for the nation. It's not necessarily a big problem for the world. <laughs> So, we might think that it's okay to let each nation be in charge of dealing with its coup risk because it faces most of the costs and benefits of that, and a nation that has a coup isn't really going to be that much of a threat to the rest of the world. So, in general, if there's a world full of future AIs and whoever is controlling an AI loses control of it, that's going to be a problem for them, and they should anticipate it. But the rest of us don't necessarily have to worry that much about it. The AI they lose control of is a small fraction of the world, and the world will still go on and they will just have lost a bit. So the reason why you might be more worried about AI risk than that is the scenario that one person losing control of one AI destroys the whole world. (laughs) And so it has to be more than just a powerful thing you lose control of. It has to be a thing that is incredibly powerful. (laughs) It's so powerful it can take over the world. Now, the question is if there's thousands of these things, how is it that all of them could take over the world? And now you have to say, well, there's going to be one that's way ahead of the others, and then it could take over the world first. And Now you have to postulate a scenario not only where there's a thing that could take over the world, but there's one of the proto-systems that's way ahead of all the rest. And so you're piling on all these assumptions about the scenario you're worried about, right? There's this thing in the future that if you lose control, it will take over the entire world, the entire universe, unknown universe. And it would do so in a sudden moment that you couldn't like, see it happening and do something about it. It would be unpredictable and you know, unexpected. And the only way to prevent this thing is to set up some initial control structure for the system. You couldn't really watch watching it adapt and adapting to how it behaved. You'd have to have some principle design that guaranteed that it couldn't blow up and destroy the world. And you, know, you have to think that you could somehow do that for all the systems that ever might be created of that sort. This is a lot of assumptions to have to accept compared to the status quo, how the world's been up until this point.
1: I, I'm certainly, I don't have a dog in this fight in so much as you do. I think I'm a little bit more middle of the road. Maybe I haven't thought about it as much. I know you've been on this side of the fence for quite some time. I can certainly see the argument that, hey, why wouldn't we expect so many different companies for navigation and logistics and finance and ever to develop extremely intelligent systems to do all sorts of different things? one country invents one to help them set policy, another country invents one to help them set policy, one invents one to help with autonomous vehicles, another one does the same thing. And eventually, these all bubble up to be really, really smart. Why wouldn't we expect those to all just kind of jockey around? And maybe Robin, would it? Would you expect that those super intelligent systems, maybe if if one of them got rowdy or aggressive, the others would kind of push back just kind of happens as happens in the global system when it comes to war or economics or other things. Is that a safe analogy to make as well in terms of how you would see things?
2: I think so. That is, we have a world of many different power centers, many different nations and firms and professions, etc., And no one of them is at much risk of taking over the world. And so if that sort of situation continues, then you should be worried about other risks.
1: I'm with you there. And again, I think that that is pretty plausible. And I can definitely see a future where there's a lot of superintelligence is kind of jockeying in different ways. I think it does also seem somewhat self-evident, and I so I can't be black and white here, but there was a time where there was you know, maybe no single cellular life on Earth, and then there was single cellular life, so sort of unprecedented thing. And then there were things that wiggled around, and then there were things that were conscious, unprecedented thing, consciousness just emerging from matter. We might imagine that there are some more unprecedented things to come, And that we have yet to think of them. You're probably congenial with that idea. Maybe you do think you've seen it. I'm
2: happy to spread a probability distribution over a large space. There we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. But still, you know, if you said, I have a weird theory and, you know, they said Galileo was wrong and therefore I'm right. And you go,
1: well, just because they said Galileo was wrong doesn't mean you're right, right? (laughs) Sure, sure. But you've got to make the distinction here. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm essentially saying that I'm not going to handcuff myself to either fence post it. have a vast
2: space of possibilities and distribute a probability distribution over it. But you should pay attention to, like, where in the past what we've seen. And, you know, maybe it's such a big space, you can't really put very large weight on any small part of a big space.
1: So you'll just have to think about a lot of different strange things that can happen. When we've done surveys, whether it's AI sentience or artificial general intelligence, it's 30 to 40... PhDs getting ideas. And even then, Robin, I don't know if my ideas are any more confident than they were before. We are talking about the future here, and it's kind of tough to juggle that out. If we do have these multiple super intelligences, when, what you're framing seems to be sort of this future where, which I, by the way, I think is completely plausible, this future where we have extremely intelligent systems, making policy, managing resources, maybe even negotiating with each other in fancy dancy ways, traveling and gathering resources from far off meteors, whatever the case may be. That sounds like they are serving humanity for the most part, based on at least the way we were kind of articulating it. Would you foresee that you know the first wave, or maybe even into the foreseeable future, super intelligences would do exactly that, or would you have a different take?
2: Let's make the analogy with corporations today. We are in a world of super intelligences, in that each most corporations, most government agencies are more capable than anyone human, and they exist, and they pursue their ends, and we are part of that world, but we are shaped by them and they are shaped by us. Are they at the command of humanity? It's not obvious. It depends on how you want to say it, really. But we are thriving and being okay in this new world. I'm not sure we are controlling it. There's a sense in which the world is just not being controlled by anyway. The world is on a trajectory, If there's a train going down a track, and none of us are really choosing it or controlling it. New technologies appear, and that changes the world. We don't vote on that or decide which ones should appear. We're mostly moving into an unexplored space of possible civilizations, and we're not choosing it. So, but neither are the corporations really. Hmm. No, nobody's choosing the world we're moving into. We're just moving there, and we can try to think about where it will go and what we'll do when we get there. But that's the situation we're in. Nobody is choosing the trajectory of humanity and civilization. It is I, just moving.
1: I, I suspect that that's the case. I do think that. Even among the founders of the open AIs of the world, the stated ambition is, if anything, a pinch or a nudge or a throwing in of one's ingredients into the great spinning cauldron. I don't think even they are at least overtly saying we will be able to define the grand trajectory of intelligence and the future itself. But let's unpack this corporate analogy for a little bit. I do want to get back to kind of the service of humanity versus not, because I do want to know your ideas there. But the corporate analogy is, is an interesting one. My guess is most listeners have not thought about this, this notion that there are entities now, which at least as far as I know, IBM is not sentient unto itself, but it wields a great many more resources and influence and consumes and uses and does all sorts of things that you and I are incapable of and any one member of that company are incapable of. What are the other points of analogy from superintelligence and corporation? Because I think this, is, this will be a useful tool for the rest of the discussion.
2: Well, if we just list their various capabilities, they are very intelligent. If they ask themselves a question, they can get a very expert, accurate answer to it as best as anybody could. They can initiate large projects. They can initiate large plans. They have enormous resources. They have selfish conflicts with other, you know, competing entities. They strategize against each other and try to manipulate each other and manipulate the world in order to gain their selfish ends. Those selfish ends don't correspond very directly to any one of the rest of us and our ends. That seems like a, they're super beings, and they are agents in a sense. They aren't just some sort of oracle that gives answers. They have. They know about their own existence. They know their existence could end. They don't want to end. They think about how they can arrange the world so they will not end. And they also think about how they can arrange the world so they can become larger and more powerful. They do all of those things that you might be
1: afraid of in an AI. It sounds like what life in general does. It sounds like yes. Spinoza's panatus in general, probably from single-celled organisms right on up, which I, I know you'll be in the web. So, okay, so maybe that's, a decent analogy that we're already, like you had said, we don't necessarily, nobody steers everything going on in IBM, however, we're working with it and it has some, it maybe does some things that aren't great for a community or a set of people, but it does some other things that are useful and it's sort of part of this functioning complex world in a way harder to grasp way than any human could understand individually. And here we are and we're okay and we're working right alongside them. For you, there's an analogy to that and a bunch of very wild super intelligences sending rockets off to gather minerals from meteors kind of could be the same sort of normalcy in terms of the balance. So, you know, there are creatures in the world like, say, horses
2: or alligators. And from their point of view, this world is less congenial. And the main difference is there there isn't much demand for their labor in this market, in this economy, right? Yeah. So we humans turn out to be useful at the moment in this economy. That's why there's a lot of us and that we're paid a lot and that we get a lot of this world is because this world needs us and it pays us and then we spend our money on the products of this world. But alligators don't in the sense that the world is not very interested in alligators and paying them for things and so the world is not rewarding or, you know, it's making alligators thrive from the point of view of an alligator. This isn't such a great world, but it's the same world. It's about our relative orientation to
1: it compared to the alligator well this is actually a really interesting point a couple things um I think many humans would hope in their wildest farthest off dreams that we would survive anywhere near as long as alligators so I got to give them credit where credits due in one regard but to your point you know I'm, I certainly don't have any alligators on payroll right now and very few people do that that said you're bringing up this point of we live in a world today with you know, our ships going across the ocean and our conversations happening over the internet, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty well defined by its leading species, sort of who is kind of the arbiter of value. You know, the reason alligators aren't taken over is because to be honest, we wouldn't want that. We have things to do that aren't feeding alligators.
2: But I'm saying that the main reason that we do set a lot of value agendas is because we are valuable as employees. That's the, and that we own wealth. Alligators don't have those two things, that's why the world doesn't cater to them. So the question is, why is the world catering to humans and understanding that? Because the world's catering to humans and not lots of other creatures. And it's not because like, humans have some fundamental relationship to the world no. that like, keeps us in control. The world is out of our control. We're not actually controlling it or making it going. But the fact that we are in demand and that we own property, those are the things that make the world pay attention to us now. So a future where we are, where those things happen less, that's the sort of future I think you should worry most about, because that would be the simple way we become like alligators.
1: Yeah. um, And who would want that? Uh, So it it does strike me that it has only been relatively recently that as a species or whoever is running the show, you know, that, that let's say certainly an economy of sorts has existed probably for as long as agriculture maybe earlier. There's been a lot of things defined in the world by force as well. In addition to dollars, of course, you got to feed armies, and you got to you got to right. clothe them and everything else as well. So there's certainly something to be said of that. Although the Mongols did a pretty solid number on people with a little bit more in terms of gold reserves, but I guess what you're getting at is the economic the economic value of a set of entities is sort of their permission to flourish, so to speak, from the world. You're kind of per- personifying right. so even in a world of
2: war and not simple trade. The armies still, they need soldiers. And so whoever is capable of being an effective soldier, they're going to get a lot of benefits from those armies. So humans were paid by armies because they could be the soldiers. And so again, alligators were not the soldiers, so alligators didn't get paid by Genghis Khan, right? So it's less about the peaceful nature of the relationships and more about your ability to contribute to whatever people are doing.
1: Yeah, and I guess contributing today, as you and I speak, is sort of contributing to what humans give a you know what about. That would be what contributing would be defined as in so much as I think our conversation is sort of headed. It it does strike me that you and I value things differently than if we were chimpanzees. Number one, it's quite unlikely we will develop this technology to have this conversation. We'd also probably have a lot more like banana and dung throwing oriented stuff we'd be talking about as opposed to the things we're talking about right now. My, My suspicion would be that if we were to level up a couple more tabs, I don't know what we are genetic difference from chimps. It's not a ton. If we were going to level up a couple more of those pegs, it does seem as though the things that would be valued might not be hiring somebody on Fiverr to overhaul my website or something like that, right? It, it would be a different ballgame. Would you suspect humans would still be running the show in that scenario?
2: I'm not sure what the counterfactual assumption here is. If we imagine that are we imagining that chimpanzees were just much more productive than they are now, and that humans were less productive, or what? what are we imagining?
1: No, no, no. What I'm saying is that few, chimpanzees didn't have a very wide range of things to value, Robin, compared to you and I. I'm giving us both some well, credit here. Um, okay. So now, well, what's we, the
2: counterfactual? You have a scenario we're trying to imagine. What's yeah? Well, the what we would
1: suspect is that a vastly higher intelligence would similarly have very different things that it would value than you or I just as you and I have very different things that we value from what a chimpanzee might value. Right now, we're talking about a world sort of based on human trade and the things that you and I can understand and we can speak about in English because you know these are the tools. We have lips and tongues and things like that. It does strike me that there might be a future should there be agents of vastly higher intelligence that would have goals as unintelligible to you and I as our goals are to a chimpanzee. But some people do think AI will always be in service of just the human goals, the human kind of economy of sorts. What is your take there?
2: So humans are culturally plastic. That means human values vary a lot by culture. Sure. Humans don't have a fixed set of values all through human society and history. Each different culture creates a different set of values for humans, and then they value those things in that culture. So, we're already in a situation, even just among humans, of a lot of different strange creatures in that class valuing different things, because humans from different cultures have value different things. So, it's therefore, yes, of course, I admit that even if we add an even larger space of minds, they will also have divergent values, because even within the space of humans, you have a lot of potential values. But important thing to realize is that the ability to express different values is limited by sort of the degree of slack or competition in a world. So, our distant ancestors were mostly living in a world of subsistence, and that meant that their behavior was pretty constrained by what they needed to do to subsist. And so, they had relatively limited abilities to express divergent values because the farther they moved away from behaving in sort of the maximally efficient way in a subsistence, you know, society, the more they would be selected against. So divergent values have the most consequence in a world of wealth and slack, where competition isn't pushing you up against the limits of survival. And that's a way to think about maybe why human values matter more now at the moment than they used to, because we are living in a world of more wealth and slack.
1: Certainly. I mean, here in Boston, I'm sure wherever your travels have taken you, you know, there there's movements around all kinds of concerns that are just less of a really big pressing deal in rural parts of India, you know, around the environment or even animal welfare or things like that. In, in right. some places, I'm sure those are major concerns, by the way. I think there's, a, right. ve- vegetarianism is huge in India. Maybe it's a wrong geography to pick, but I think we get to be a little more fancy dancy about what we care about and what we want to organize right. resources around when we're not starving.
2: So now um, th- there's a clean thing to notice is that, you know, even now, today, we are under evolutionary selection pressures and they are playing out. They'll take a while to have their full expression, but we aren't free of competition right now. We're just free of immediate consequences of it. And so the longer a timescale you look at, the more that everybody looks like they are facing competitive pressures. We aren't actually living in a world of slack. If you think about us on the longer timescales, it's only if you look at the shorter timescales that we seem to be free. but. Our choices still have consequences even today. And that means, you know, competition and the results of competition is just a bigger factor on the long run, unless you can find a regime where somehow competition itself gets tamed under the power of some other, you know, organizational
1: force. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to, I think we are going to probably end up in the bigger governance ball game before this conversation ends. I want to touch on something real quick that we were just spinning onto around this idea of the plasticity of human values, but also the relatively limited range, all things considered of human values. My neighbor has a dog who just, no matter how many cool tricks it can learn with a tennis ball, is never really going to appreciate any of Emerson's poems or any of the writing of Francis Bacon. You and I, if you were born, Robin, and the year 1100 in China somewhere, and I was born 100 years in the future in Paris, I'm sure we would be pretty well molded by whatever that environment is. But there's not an unlimited space of values that humans can necessarily gobble up. We might suspect that an intelligence many pegs higher than our own would have a way of valuing things and pursuing aims in the world that you and I couldn't understand. Um, Do you suspect that that is false? In other words, AGI will always do things that are human intelligible because it will be at our service, or do you suspect we may be swimming among things we're confused by, just like crickets are confused when I'm constructing a new house in rural Massachusetts? I mean, I certainly
2: think that in the long-term future, unless we actively prevent it through some form of governance, you know, a competitive world naturally leads to the existence of creatures who are opaque and hard to understand. To us and even other creatures, so and attributing values to such creatures may be hard when they're opaque and complicated. Just, but that's also true of humans. In fact, humans often find it hard to, attre- you know, explain the behavior of other humans in terms of some consistent set of values. We can do it a, to a some approximation, but at a certain point, we we run out. We're just not sure we understand them.
1: So okay, so it sounds as though you do see a world that eventually crosses that chasm but it's a slower takeoff world. At some point, there might be entities doing things that we don't understand. Would you suspect that kind of like the alligators are still alive today, Robin, as humanity, we should expect, even when the world is run and the higher levels of value are determined by higher intelligent forms, that we would still have our little enclaves and ecosystems uh, that we would be able to enjoy uh, or not?
2: So, you know, I guess the sort of three
1: main scenarios
2: you could think about One is, we form some sort of governance and we take control of evolution and change, and then the resulting world is the result that governance institution chooses or can maintain. We could talk about what that might be. A second scenario is more a competitive world uh, where there is nobody in charge, and it's out of control and it just evolves in different directions, and then a question is, how big a place do people like us have in that world and one kind of place we could have is that there could be some versions of us like or some descendants of us that are actually productive enough to be competitive and get paid wages and continue to you know be part of choices that are made because we're actually valuable there and another scenario is that we become legacy things who retire and no longer are productive but we have some sort of wealth some sort of property and we perhaps become a declining fraction of the world, but still maintains some sort of presence. Okay, so other scenarios where anything at all related to us is just extinct.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay, Those are, I guess, four scenarios I've oh, very described. Very plausible. Yeah, okay. I think they're all plausible. And then we could talk about like what are the various ways we could try to foresee which scenarios would be more likely, what would be the factors that might cause one to become more likely to increase or decrease the yes. chances of any one of these scenarios. I'm happy to go there and of-
1: I think exactly where we should go. And I'll give the listeners some background. So this conversation is sort of spawned by Twitter conversations which is probably Robin where, you know, our most of our conversations are relegated to an article called The Last Words of Alexander, which is an essay around AGI and power. That article Robin is certainly not arguing for the inevitability of a singleton. It is more arguing that it's quite likely that the state of nature that we see now is to continue. In other words, that some sort of halting of evolution writ large by some regulatory force would simply be some other manifestation of the canadis, canadising. And regulation and innovation would be kind of countervailing forces, and that ultimately, sort of, the state of nature doesn't end. There isn't sort of a place where we can escape and we can hide from competitive pressures, and that may literally just be the way things come about. AGI might just come about from that kind of hard competition, and it may be very hard for us to get to global governance. That's essentially the gist there. I think there are reasons to hope for global governance. I think there's reasons to suspect it's unlikely, or it's just another realm of conflict. What is your take in terms of likelihood of that divergent state of nature, as maybe we see today in the international system, versus that global governance? So
2: I want to first, like, make it clear there's a divergent range of scenarios that you might call global governance and that you'll care a lot about which of these scenarios. It's, so, you shouldn't yeah. just lump them all into one category. So, well, yeah, I gave,
1: I gave you a sentence, but I mean, right, you know. Okay, you, right. yeah.
2: so, so let me elaborate. So first of all, I think that if our descendants ever are able to sort of start interstellar colonization where they head off in different directions, far away, call colonies, and then continue going, if those things are not under some strong governance regimes that makes, sh- that controls the variance of those things behavior, then at that point, it's too late to prevent competition. That would just ensure competition f- for many billions of years, at least, because they would just continue on for, you know, a billion light years racing away and it would just be infeasible for some center to keep control of them. And so then they would compete with each other, fight wars, evolution, just, you know, the possibilities of evolution and would be realized in that scenario. So that way if you ask, until that's a deadline for global governance in some sense. And global governance have to get strong enough and big enough by that deadline in order to prevent that. Or that happens and then game over.
1: Uh-huh. game over. That almost sounds pessimistic, which has... Well, it depends on whether you like it or not. You might sure, think we're sure, there over we over go. good and then we win. There right? we go. You know, yeah, comfort, yeah, yeah. If you want competition to win, then this is game over, competition wins. Got it, so, got it. Okay, so, so this, going, a, this is a great distinction. What you're saying is if global governance is to happen, there actually is kind of a line in the sand. Because right now we live in a sandbox where you know maybe right? all the intelligence stuff is bound. What you're saying is when it's out of the sandbox and nobody can control it all, then there is no more global governance. So that's an important distinction. Talk to us a little bit about the forms, which I know you want to unpack. I think there's going to be a lot to unravel. So, you know,
2: actually in the last half century, we have created a global community of sort of a global mob, without a global government. But I don't think people realize that it's quite a different world than there was 50 years ago or a century ago. So, you know, a century ago, we had a world of nations. And within each nation, they had elites and important people. But the nations really did compete substantially and the elites of each nation were pretty much loyal to that nation and not to some larger world community. But now, the elites of most nations are in fact more loyal to a world community of elites who meet each other a lot and talk a lot and respect each other and set the status of each of them with respect to this global community of elites. And that world community of elites now drives most world policies in most nations. Most regulatory frameworks in most nations are driven by this world community of world elites, and that's why the world doesn't actually have much deviation or variation in its regulatory policy in large important er- most large important areas. If you looked at, you know, say the pandemic, it was very striking that, you know, at the first the usual world experts had their usual opinion about the pandemic and then elites around the world all talked about it. And within a month, they all had a different opinion and they stated that opinion and the whole world switched and followed their policy recommendation. And the whole world did it the same, all based on the world elites all getting together and talking about it. And this is the world we live in. So if you look at nuclear energy or medical ethics or a wide range of other things, we are in a world with a strong global community which enforces its standards worldwide, and the world mostly does things the same. So this isn't quite the same as world government. This is in the sense, like a world government might authorize experiments to try things different, and this world can't. This world community can create a consensus about the right thing to do and then make everybody do it, and it really can't authorize experiments where some people do it differently. That's the world we're living in, so we are in this sense halfway to a world government we're already on the path and you might now realize that and it will be substantially hard from this going forward for nations to deviate from this global consensus about regulation of the key technologies and and even you know allowing evolution now you know there's still a lot of change that's happening we still have growth, and this certainly hasn't locked down and prevented all change or growth, but it's Power is increasing, so we could imagine adding on to this more formal global governance. And we have some weak forms of global governance, but you can slowly imagine stronger forms of global governance with more powers. And then the key thing that now happens is you have this new system of competition. That is, elites are still competing with this world of global elites, but they're competing for status and respect among the other global elites. And they're competing for who can be ranked higher and and more respected by the others. So it's it's still a regime of competition, but it's a regime of competition where behavior is substantially influenced by the norms and expectations that these global elites create. That is, by changing their opinion about what they respect, they change what's selected for and they change who wins competition.
1: This is an interesting way of framing it. I certainly, I think anecdotally can look out into the world and say, geez, man, some of those powerful folks really are saying the same kind of thing. I maybe haven't studied it to the same extent that you have to be able to say that the global elites you know, set agenda A, B, or C, but it seems more than plausible. And I'm following you. And I think what you're saying is that's almost an interim step. You know, when the policies of the states are kind of in alignment because these powerful voices that live in all these states sort of get on the same page. That's almost a type of governance. But the key point to
2: notice is even having a global governance doesn't end competition.
1: Yes, of course. And well, and I think, again, that's the hypothesis of the entire essay is that competition just doesn't end. There is no... But it it can prevent some forms of competition. So for example, the world at the
2: moment is just not very interested in allowing much evolution of nuclear power. So nuclear power evolution has been pretty much shortcut for a while. And... That may They may relent on that, but they haven't so far. And so what happens is that the global government or the global community or even the global mob chooses what are the scope for competition and what is not, but they may have limited capacity to limit all competition. So if you imagine trying to prevent all competition, that's a pretty demanding thing to ask of governments. So, so far, what they're capable of is preventing particular sorts of competition, but that's a relatively small percentage of all the competition that happens that they can protect that they prevent.
1: Do you suspect that this alignment uh, of of policy internationally set by what you're sort of describing as this you know elite ban? I, I think from my vantage point, not speaking Japanese or Hindi or anything like that, I can kind of only see the quote unquote elites in in the ecosystems that speak my language. For all I know the the billionaires of Japan tout exactly the same things as those in Austin, Texas. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But well, let's just suspect that there is a lot of alignment there in a very eerie way. Do you think that naturally makes it maybe easier for the United Nations or some sort of other sort of body to come into being, to be formed and to start to solidify in more unified ways?
2: Well, it makes it easier, but maybe less urgent.
1: Hmm, interesting. If okay. the
2: world mostly achieves coordination through this informal mechanism, And if many people would be triggered and resist more, if there was this more formal government, maybe they will prefer to continue with the informal coordination, which doesn't offend people as much. Because most people haven't even noticed that they live in this world government.
1: I I think there is an argument, and in fact, this is kind of what's made in the essay, that... It's just very unlikely that the formalization of that world government will come about. And it's very unlikely that the forces driving towards an arms race with military power, economic power, will be able to be squelched sufficiently to keep somebody from just really trying to run ahead with things, as as opposed to what we would need for kind of the squelching of these broader sense of competition, I think would be a global steering committee of sorts and a global mechanism for transparency around how compute and AI is being used and developed, maybe brain computer interface is being used and developed. And that global steering and transparency feels like it would be very hard to achieve when right now China, for example, has a lot of reasons to want to go pedal to the metal with its demographic issues and try to break through and, you know, achieve more power. I mean we the world does regulate a lot of different industries pretty heavily, so
2: if you're you're asking about the prospects for heavy regulation of ai in the near future the most obvious evidence is well it's not an area that has been regulated very heavily in the past yeah. and it's also where the enabling technologies are pretty widespread at the moment so you know if you think about nuclear power well there's only so many limited sources of uranium or something so exactly. you can regulate an industry yeah. by regulating the access to that or even you know Biotechnology, there's only so many people who know how to rearrange viruses and there's a limited number of those labs. You can try to regulate that, although we haven't done a very good job of that. But if you're talking about computers and like computers are all over the world and all you it's need tough. is computers to uh, do some AI, you're going to have to imagine a pr- more intrusive regime of regulation that would prevent AI research. But that's still possible. If you managed to get the world mad enough and scared enough, it would be possible, but it would be expensive and you know substantially intrusive so
1: this would be a mechanism for limiting potentially some kinds of competition, namely the raw arms race dynamic. I think there really is danger of hardcore military push being the way that brain computer interface and ai is is driven pure pedal to the metal in terms of that kind of a dynamic. It does feel like there could be some pretty rough, reckless scenarios that emerge i from mean that. if I think about AI competition i have
2: to think about which technologies are sort of especially militarily appropriate. So in the early days of computers, the military did actually drive a lot of research into computers, because they had this sense that computers were more militarily sent issues. but in fact, they have seen the opposite that if you think about most technology, what you know the military tends to get into technology, when that technology tends to have more military applications than other applications. Otherwise, the military just has to run the whole economy, right? Which we're not willing to do now. So what we do is have the military run technologies that are especially potent for the military, but not other technologies. And so far, computers haven't been especially military technology. That is, in fact, in the world today, computers are similarly useful in the military as they are everywhere else. So that could change, perhaps, but that's what makes me think that military won't be driving AI because it's just not especially military technology. And then there's the other fact that, look, the, one of the main things this world community has effectively done is to substantially suppress military competition in the world. In fact, that's one of the main things the world elite community is most proud of. That's one of their core values and one of their highest priorities, and they have seemingly successfully reduced the rate of Large-scale military conflict in the world. And for example, the current conflict in Ukraine is a prime example where most of the world elites think this is a key, you know, example of how they need to make a lesson and show the world that sort of thing's not going to be allowed. And they're they're winning at the moment. Looks like they will succeed in making this an example where the world will take the example that this is one of the things the world elites have decided you shouldn't do, and they will punish you if you do it. And look what happened to Russia.
1: Yeah, well, certainly worse things could be happening to Russia right now than currently are. There's certainly some on the side of us having a pretty feeble response to all those people in Ukraine getting killed. But you're right to say that there is a uniform outcry from the certainly the democracies of the world. I'm not exactly sure where China stands, per se. And I think the elites in a nation like a China maybe don't have as much sway. I don't think we can do to Elon Musk what happened to Jack Ma, if you follow me, Robin. So, do you suspect, it seems to me as though any movement towards global governance would need to require a handful less dictator for life, break your legs and kill you no matter how rich you are if we disagree with your regimes than, you know, that currently exists in the world today. That without those, maybe global governance would be astronomically easier. Is it realistic? Number one is, it, do you agree with that supposition? Number two, is it realistic to suppose that those regimes would, in any substantial way, change in the coming you know half a century
2: so what we're describing here is a slow trend that hasn't been reached its completion yet but we can see the trend you look at a century ago a half century ago you see a world where the elites in each nation were more allied to that nation more focused on promoting that nation and less integrated with the elites elsewhere in the world over time we have seen more of this accumulation of a world elites who are more loyal to and aligned with the world elites and less attached to their particular country. But we still have nations and we still have some people in charge of nations. But even China mostly goes along with the world's conventions about how to regulate most things. So a dramatic example was genetic engineering. Like 10 years ago, I used to hear people wanting to see a lot of genetic engineering saying, yes, the West is not going to allow genetic engineering, but China will allow it because they think about these things differently. And they do think about these things differently, but they had to make a choice. Do we want to be seen as defying the world consensus on this? Yeah. Or do we want to be seen as the good guys going along with the it? consensus? They decided this was not worth the fight. And that's true on most things. Most policies, China regulation is pretty close to most of the rest of the world. Okay. Which is important evidence they, they aren't going on everything. So, And you can focus on those differences, but you should notice the big trend so far
1: and how much they are going along. So for you, that bodes quite well for the eventual emergence of tighter and tighter, more true global governance, because they're moving in some way, shape, or form in that direction. I'm scared of global governance, so I'm not so
2: sure I'm eager to see it. (laughs) I might rather we ended up with the escaped competition going out into the universe and guaranteeing that competition continues because there's a bunch of things I worry about in global governance.
1: All right. This is a great point. I've been interested to see different takes here. I imagine you disagree with a good deal of Bostrom's thinking here. And there's all sorts of perspectives on the one hand. And within myself, I'm not 100% sure at all. I think anybody who is would be ridiculous. There is the idea of the global transparency and steering and governance, maybe reducing some kinds of very rough competition that could be catastrophic. And if, you know, you had asked, how do we end competition altogether? Well, if all life ended, Robin, I think that'd be a really strong way to get it done. I mean, that's the the best way to get it done, actually. So there's runaway competition that feels like it could be dangerous. There's also this notion of really stifled, ossified, you know, Byzantine governance, not maybe, let's say birthing a grander sentient intelligence as as quite as well as a world that's vying for power physically, economically, etc. Why not let the fecundity of nature continue? Why not allow that to be the thing that bubbles up the next era of intelligence? You seem to be in more the latter camp in terms of your, you know, multi-thousand year hopes.
2: Sure. Just to make a side comment, we don't have to go into detail. I actually think that There are aliens out there, roughly once per million galaxies, that we would meet in roughly a billion years if we were to continue on out there. And that it's relatively inevitable that the universe will be filled of these alien civilizations, and my guess is they are mostly competitive. So the competitive future in that way is kind of guaranteed. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 I'm right there with you.
2: By the alien civilizations. What we have control over is maybe the nearest million galaxies for the next billion years and how they play out but we don't necessarily control the universe after that. That will be controlled by basically the average effect of thousands of alien civilizations and how they, whether they chose competition or governance. And my guess is they chose competition.
1: Well, the last words of Alexander when they asked to whom do we give the kingdom was to the strongest. And it sounds like you and I are in agreement that the galaxies themselves, however many millions they are spread apart, Robin, will also be run by the strongest. It sounds like you're in somewhat of agreement there.
2: Although this is less of a value judgment and just a prediction that this is how it'll play out. But Yeah, sure, sure. I'm I'm not calling it a value value judgment. I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah, I mean- (laughs) But there is the issue of the next billion years here and what we can do about that. And that's the issue of global governance
1: here on earth. I really, really like this distinction. So I'm completely with you. I think once we head out into the stratosphere, assuming there's any other intelligence, we shouldn't suspect that they've gotten there by eating gumdrops and playing video games, right? We, We should suspect that they've gotten there through- some amount of force, and that galaxies will be ruled by the strongest. Now, the question is, will the strongest force on Earth potentially be this pull towards global governance? I'd love to maybe, in the back part of our interview here, talk a bit about some of what you see as the real detriments of that scenario. Because like you said, it is one path to this next billion years trajectory into the grander competitive landscape of the universe. What are the downsides of that path?
2: So just first of all just to make a notice we started out talking about AI but for the last you know 45 minutes we've not been talking about AI we've just been talking in general about the nature of governance and the nature of competition and that's fine with me and I think people often are really just worried about general governance and competition issues but they frame it in terms of AI but often their real concerns are just about these other larger questions we've been talking about so I'm happy to just talk about them more directly
1: yeah, sure. I mean, I think they could in some way, shape or form be related. We are talking about this global governance defining potentially and setting bounds on future intelligence. So I'm in this conversation, sure. presuming that we're talking about bubbling up the spires of form, Robin, bubbling up to higher forms of intelligence and sentience. And this global governance is relevant in so much as at birth is said deity. Um, and I'm not or, as interested, or, or prevents, or, or prevents it altogether. So that is the context under which we're we're discussing this. But let's go ahead and and roll that out. So I'm I'm considering these mixed topics, um, okay. but but lay, lay them right on out. So one thing to notice is
2: that at the moment when expanding into the cosmos becomes possible, if there's a central governance that thinks that it's not ready yet, <laughs> it may prevent that expansion for a long time under, say, the great reflection scenario that people have advocated, that it's not ready to exploit the expansion, because it's not like pr- ready to control the expansion sufficiently. You might think, okay, we're going to allow the expansion eventually in another million years, but first we have to perfect our control mechanism so that whatever goes out there stays under our control. Wow. They, could allow, they could like have it continue for a long time without expansion under the story that they're going to allow it eventually when they finally perfect their control of governance over these colonists. So that's a way in which the central governance thing could last quite a long time, you see. It won't just last till the first moment when it might become technically possible to expand, it might last well past that because people might say, yeah, it's technically possible to expand, but then they would compete and we don't want that, so let's hold off on yeah. the expansion. Okay, another thing, so that gives us a longer time scales, and then another just generic thing to worry about and I'll just mention, it's not that big a thing, but a generic thing to worry about centralized control of civilization is that it increases the risk of suicide. That Come on, is... This,
1: this is a fun, is a fun <laughs> turn of events here. Lay it out, lay it out. So just
2: in a world of like many different powers, if any one power gets it into its head to commit suicide, the rest of the world goes on. If there's a single central power, and it gets it into its head to commit suicide, then it might be everything that dies. That's just a generic risk of central power. Like, like, You might think, well, that's kind of crazy. You know, Nothing would ever really want to commit suicide. Why? That doesn't make sense, except things do commit suicide. And in some sense, not only have individuals committed suicide, like firms and nation, and cultures have often committed suicide in the sense that they saw themselves heading toward a bad end. They said, yeah, we don't care. Let's just, we like it now. Let's just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's a thing you should worry about for a long-term central control of the civilization is whether it ever gets it into its head to commit suicide. It's, you know, it, there's not that much more
1: to say about this point, yeah, but it's yeah, a yeah. Point worth noticing. So there's sort of the anti fragility that would go away from this idea of all these kind of enmeshed competing forces that could sort of eat up the dead parts. What you're saying is right. there's a chance from rot right from the core, which we would not really be able to bounce back from.
2: And I think another issue is rot more generally. So most people in the world, most academics who haven't had much experience with software, don't realize how important system rot is as a process in the world. So most software rots, especially most large software systems. And this means that even though all the bits are perfectly preserved, nevertheless, slowly the system becomes more fragile and harder to modify. And consistently the world simply throws away large old valuable software systems and rewrites them from scratch. (laughs) And that's a big fact about software. It just rots. And we understand how, which is that a large complicated systems have a certain degree of modularity. Modularity is an important feature to allow complex systems to be designed and maintained. And consistently, as you change large modular systems in response to changes in the environment and demands and other sorts of things, you just consistently reduce the modularity. Changes tend to just add more dependencies. And as those dependencies accumulate, the system becomes harder to modify and eventually it becomes so hard that you throw it away and start out from scratch. And that's just the world of rot. And it's also true of our brains, that as our brains seem to move from crystallized intelligence to fluid intelligence in such a similar way that we become less able to flexibly change, we rot. Our minds become less able to adapt and evolve. And species actually seem to rot. And Firms seem to rot over time. Firms slowly become less able to adapt to changing circumstances, and slowly they have a higher rate of dying. And so do nations and empires. In history, empires have risen and fallen substantially due to rot. So, you know, organisms, species, firms, computer software, it all rots. And the only consistent solution to rot has ever been to allow new young things to grow up, to replace them. That's it. That's Na- the generic nature, solution.
1: Nature's fecundity has shaken out pretty well up until now and you seem to be advocating for it moving forward and I certainly think there's an argument for it. You me- you mentioned empires and businesses. It's funny that the namesake of this dynamic of things becoming clunky and stodgy and useless is Byzantine. So it's uh, yes. d- drawn directly from a big clunky, boring empire which, you know, died yes. from this kind of rot you're articulating. So, I'd like to be mindful of time with maybe you know, 10 or a little bit more on the clock here, bring it back to our beginnings around artificial intelligence. You seem to, and I could be reading you wrong, maybe have some hope that intelligence that would bloom here into potentially higher, and you had said opaque forms, at least opaque to you and I, would be able to travel, leave, and probably eventually it'll have to compete with other intelligences, but be ready to do that, that it does sound like that is somewhat of a worthy goal. I would say, at least on my side, I would consider that to maybe be the worthy goal in um, some, some way, shape, or form, if you were to think I, about... Go ahead, go ahead, if you want to correct that.
2: Well, I mean, honestly, I think people imagine that these intelligences that are going to evolve and appear just have nothing to do with us, and I think that's going too far. So, you know, from long ago, there was this concept of an ideal mind, and there was the contrast between an ideal mind and actual human minds. And this contrast tended to be unflattering about human minds. So the typical concept of a logical mind, a logical calculating mind, was that it would just skip most of the distinctive futures of humans. It would not have nostalgia, it would not have love, it would not care about art, it would not make the sort of emotional mistakes that we made. And that has driven this idea that once artificial minds appear, most of what humans are like would just quickly disappear and go away. Because of this concept that what we are is actually not very valuable, it's not very well designed. We're just not very functional. That's long been a presumption, and so, in fact, you know, people thought that machines would get we best at logic at first, and then most you know, advanced artificial intelligence. They would the thing they could do best would be. Some sort of abstract logical reasoning, like science and law and, and those things, and that things like art or humor or things like that would be some of the last things that our AI would do, because those are some of the dregs of, you know, bad human, useless features. And of course, what we've actually seen recently is that we found it we've made more progress in some of these other parts than we have in the logic. But the key assumption here is just that human minds are just stupidly designed and badly constructed, and there's just not much value in them to
1: inherit. And I think that's really quite wrong. Well, I wouldn't say that's my perspective, although I'm not sure AI, AGI will have nostalgia per se, but I think what you're getting at is that there's important things that will be imparted to these systems. They won't be the wholly alien things that maybe Bostrom has occasionally described, these wholly alien intelligences you're suspecting a lot of this will be inherited from the good right. parts of the right.
2: There's two reasons to think that our AI descendants will have a lot of similarities to us.
1: Okay.
2: One is that m- many of our brain features, like nostalgia or love, are functional. They're there for a reason. They didn't weren't just random constructions the universe threw down. They were constructions that were actually useful for real reasons that maybe we didn't fully understand, but we are coming to partially understand. and. They have value because of that. And then the other reason is just we will be making AIs in our image because that's the easy way to do it. I mean, we're going to be like taking human things and having the machines emulate that. And that's why they will be like us. So these are two reasons to think that AI will be substantially like us. Not totally like us, but not strange, arbitrary,
1: random points from Mindspace. I think I I I comp- I'm, I concur in many regards. I will say there's many holdovers from our revolutionary past that maybe I, I wouldn't pick, right? The fight or flight, sort of some of the elements of freezing in terms of fight or flight. We're not rodents anymore. I don't know if we need that anymore, you know? And, and I'm not a thousand percent sure about nostalgia. If I could have it replaced by some other sentiment with some other sense of qualia, I might volitionally do that if I could change it. But I think to your point, those things allow us to function, and we're going to build AI. So maybe whatever it is that bubbles up, will have a lot of us baked into it. Maybe that's motivating for some of the listeners, because some of what we bubble up as human beings will make its way into that next form. If you are to hope, Robin, that next form, whatever it be, and however long it takes to develop, is able to compete well in what is likely to be quite a state of nature set of galaxies in this broader universe of ours. What, if you were a betting man, and I know you like betting more than most, or at least you have made many a bet about past issues. Um, If you were a betting man, what would be the scenario for AGI coming about that would give us that best chance of fighting in the broader universe in terms of whatever we turn into?
2: So our having a bigger influence on the future or the future being more like us, I think depends substantially on things like us continuing to be useful. So I think the brain emulation scenario would give a big boost. That is, if there was a period when brain emulations became feasible and yet other forms of AI were not, you know, competitive with humans, then there would be a jump where human minds got to be played with and evolved and mixed and matched and like you would start to try to make things out of human minds and that that would give this long evolutionary boost to the descendants of human minds. We would search in the space of ways to, to modify human minds in order to be useful, and we would find such things, and then the future would have more of those things. <laughs> and so, the, that we will also have other kinds of AI. But I basically think one way to think about this longer-term future is there will be software that's descended from human and brain emulations, and there'll be software that's descended from our other more artificial ways of constructing software. And which of those win where? So first of all, I think that the more that brain emulation happens first, you'll be giving a boost to the brain emulation descendants, winning more later thing. But I also think we might ask, well, you know, is there a way to think about where brain emulations should be expected to win? What are they good at compared to other kinds of software? And I think we actually know a bit about that. So again, people who think brain software is just like hopelessly broken and, and terrible, assume that we'll just throw all that away because we'll do rational things with software, but I don't think that's right. So here's the key way to think about the human brain. The human brain evolved in a context where software and hardware were not separated and made modular. So that meant when evolution was going to add any new module of software, it had to add hardware too. At the same time, it could not separately add software without the hardware. Brain architecture combines hardware and software in that way. So once the brain is full or the brain is expensive, then it was hard to just evolve the brain by just adding on new things. But you know, that's how we usually would do software. So let's contrast the brain emulation to how software is usually evolved. So today in software, you want to make a new piece of software, you start with a blank screen and you start typing. (laughs) Okay. Or you start with a data set and you do some training. But the key point is because Modu- we have modularity of hardware and software and lots of cheap storage. We just consistently start with blank strings and start adding new stuff. And that means we basically keep making very separate things that are mildly, you know, modular. But honestly, we don't put that much effort into how well designed they are or modular because we can just constantly make new modular systems. Now, they'll rot over time, but we can do that. But with the brain, evolution had to like keep sticking with the same system. So it could either add, its main choices were pretty limited. When it wanted to evolve the brain, it could like, add on a new unit by adding on hardware and software together, which added on to the cost of the brain, or it could reorganize the brain and abstract the brain. You know, reorganization and abstraction were the main ways you could make the brain more functional without adding more hardware and software on and So the brain spent a long time, brain evolution spent a long time searching in the space of how can you reorganize this and abstract it so that you can use the same hardware to do more things. And our brain is a marvel of the end result of that process. We are not very modular, but we are very well organized and abstracted. And that's how we differ from artificial software with, because we just can't be bothered to do that much search in the space of organization and abstraction and, because we're just find it so easy to just add on more software by having a new blank page. And you this make- is the way to understand yeah. where human mind will have advantages in the future.
1: Got it. And yeah, to your point, tacking on more is, you know, giving birth is hard enough as it is, certainly would be a little bit tougher if we had to hold twice as much, you know, cortex. So there is a world where the human brain type software, which you've written a whole book about this, but the idea of brain simulations might be part of the mix, as well as more software as we think about it now, or maybe AI solutions as they exist out in the enterprise space or the consumer space now. All of these things will flourish. some will win in some areas, some will win in others. That great fecundity we talked about, Robin, will continue in software. Is your hope, if we are to eventually bubble up into something greater and you know, have to compete out in the much broader prairies of the universe, uh, is your hope that that software bubbles up in its own unique ways in different nations, into all kinds of divergent superintelligences that hopefully play nice in a mostly economic? standpoint? Is that what you would hope as kind of the benchmark for setting that right. right trajectory?
2: My main structure of analysis is first to guess what's likely to happen, whether I like it or not, and then ask for what small variations I might prefer. You know, I'm not very looking. Yeah, at let's do variations. that. This
1: will be fun. This will right. be fun.
2: Lay it out. So my, my default is that most likely we'll have a competitive future and that you know, then we will have this enormous divergence, and then whatever wins will be the things that are most competitive. And I have some predictions about what will be most competitive. So for example, I think I know what their values are. I can predict what the values will be. And I can predict what their time discounting will be. And so I can predict some things about the competitive outcome. But I do think there's a substantial chance that our descendants locally will choose this world governance. And that will lock down change and prevent a lot of evolution. And that will slowly rot or commit suicide and That will be the end of our descendants, and it will be some other aliens who go out there and do other things. But I'm more confident that the universe will include other things later, but our descendants may not. And I would be disappointed in that. I'd more rather that they went out and did stuff.
1: Yeah, same here.
2: But, you know... So if I ask what do I wish would happen, I wish a bit like that we have more descendants, that we go out and do big stuff. I also just wish maybe like human styles will have a longer legacy rather than a shorter legacy. So I wish for more the age of M and M's to sort of go out and have more places they colonize. And, of, you know, and then I might wish for like peace and lack of war and terrible destruction. Those seem like the sort of things I could reasonably wish for and maybe anticipate a bit about what things might move them one way or the other.
1: Huh. But yeah, like you had said, you know, you can't impose that preference on the world. It sounds as though you actually do see a lot of magnetism towards governance and a very big risk of of rot in terms of being a betting man moving forward.
2: Right, but I, I see at the moment this we're halfway there in terms of this global community. You made a compelling argument. And I see a lot of people really like it emotionally. They like this idea that the world gets together and talks about what to do rather than fighting and competing. And people often react negatively to the image of competition, and they want to regulate many industries to be less competitive, and, you know, I see that path happening before us.
1: Well, nations are born stoic and die, Epicurean Robin, will that happen to the whole world, I wonder? Well,
2: we've seen the rise and fall of civilization, but now that we have a world civilization,
1: yes. the question is, can guess. a
2: world civilization fall and something else rise again, right? Yeah. If the world had several competing civilizations, then any one fall, the others might take place. But what if the world rises and then falls? And so, you know, and there's a the problem like, if it just falls somewhat, if it no longer <laughs> yeah. is able to rise anymore, but it still doesn't fall and crash and completely die, it just maintains control and slowly is yeah. less proficient at that, but stays that for a long time, then it prevents other things from replacing it.
1: So curious, well, and there's probably an entire other, Realm of discussion around exactly how those crumblings could happen. But I like that you've been able to make your argument as to what would, which you and I can't affect the trajectory very much, what would seem most likely to have intelligence from this planet, as you had said, go off and do things. I have my fingers crossed, Robin, that eventually some intelligence from this planet does go off and do things, and maybe brain emulations will even be part of that. I know that's all we had for time right. for this particular discussion, but I appreciate right, you being but, able to go ahead. Just notice
2: how AI is Not really been a central part of this discussion in the sense that AI is just one of the ways that tech will change and that they will have evolved. But the actual particular first arrival of AI or the particular form it takes is not necessarily central to this whole evaluation.
1: Well, I'll say this much: I think it's very plausible that exactly what you said. You know, we people might look back 200 years and be like, "How could that not have been right?" I can't imagine some versions of the world where some kind of a fast takeoff wildly just crushes everything we've tried to discuss here. But I will say there's a lot of merit to that. And Robin, I honestly have my fingers crossed that you're right, brother. So I can say that much. We can
2: certainly say the AI we see recently, no one is very far ahead of the others on that, right? We do not see in recent events, and we don't see much of any sort of self-improvement. Recent AI, people have not been exploring self-improvement much at all. And nor has there really been much of a lead between the best and the second best and the third best. They're all pretty much neck and neck. So the foom scenarios people have worried about are not being realized in the current generation of AI systems at least.
1: There are many people that that hope that those never emerge at all. Again, for those of you who are tuning in, as we wrap up here, if you haven't if you're not familiar with the Foom idea, Google AI, foom, and you can hear some of Robin's other ideas. I do also recommend that you check out his blog where a lot of these ideas are discussed in greater depth. Robin, I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us. Thanks for talking to me.
0: So that's all for this episode of this AI Futures theme. A big thank you to Robin for being able to join. I think that at the end of the day, there were plenty of things that we disagreed with in terms of the viability of AI not destroying humanity, which we certainly are not eye to eye on. But I think we are very much eye to eye on AI's necessity to be extremely strong as it populates the galaxy. And even when I don't agree with Robin, I always learn something, and that's why I follow him on social. I don't think I ever have anybody on the show because I agree with everything they say. And I certainly had a lot of fun being able to riff with Robin. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Two things to mention as we close out here. Number one, on Fridays over the course of the next two to three months, we have a number of AI futures related themes that I'm going to be dripping out, including a great episode about AI and the future of humanity with the founder of Dataiku, a lovely AI unicorn. We have the head of the Mozilla Foundation who saw the transition to the internet and is now starting to see the transition to this programmatically generated immersive world that we're headed into. All kinds of fun themes to be explored Those episodes are going to be on Friday And they will be with yours truly Daniel Fagella here on the show As I mentioned before I am starting an entirely separate podcast Just for these themes So if you're interested in Not only the farther future implications of AI But really the current and future moves Of the power players Who are aiming to wield artificial intelligence In order to kind of determine The trajectory of intelligence itself A sort of human civilization Check out the trajectory podcast, not yet launched at the time of this recording, but you can learn more at the newsletter for The Trajectory, where you will be able to know when that show actually goes live, and you can learn more there at emerj.com tj1, emerj.com tj1. This show, the tagline is The Real Politic of Artificial General Intelligence and in the Post-Human Transition. If that sounds too far out for you, don't sign up for it. If it does sound like it's right up your alley, then I more or less guarantee it's going to be. As I mentioned before in the intro, Yashua Bengio is one of our lead interviews talking about the power dynamics of the international order with artificial general intelligence. There's so much to unpack there. That's why I'm starting an entirely separate podcast. emerj.com slash tj1 and you can learn more about that other podcast. Outside of that, another big thank you to Robin. And thank you to your listener for being able to tune in with me. I know Mr. Matthew DeMello has been taking over more of our normal programming as I've been handling a thousand other things here in the business at Emerge. But I appreciate you as a listener. As always, I'm glad to be able to join you here on this Friday. And thanks so much for tuning in.